Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand consciousness, stimulate thought, enhance your physical and psychological health, and encourage community. Good day, folks. Good to have you with me today, as always, and thank you for listening. We have a great interview coming up. Our guest today is Rabbi and Dr. Michael Lerner. Many of you have already heard of Dr. Lerner, or should I say Rabbi Dr. Lerner? I'll ask him in a moment what the correct protocol is. We're going to be talking today about two of his books, his most recent one, Embracing Israel-Palestine, but also another of his books that's important to me called Spirit Matters. I think the two are connected. We'll find out if Michael Lerner thinks the two are connected since he wrote them both. Best-selling author, Michael Lerner, Ph.D., is the rabbi of Bet Takun Synagogue in San Francisco and the editor of Takun Magazine. It's one of the most respected intellectual cultural magazines in the Jewish world. Lerner founded Takun in 1986 as the voice of Jewish liberals and progressives and as the alternative to commentary magazine and the voices of Jewish conservatism. From the start, the magazine was dedicated to Jewish ethics and to healing and repair of the world, but it has evolved into one of the leading interfaith intellectual magazines in the West and the spur to a new movement, the Network of Spiritual Progressives. You might want to check it out online, folks. You can just easily Google it, Takun, T-I-K-K-U-N, T-I-K-K-U-N. Michael Lerner is a frequent lecturer and scholar in residence at universities, synagogues, churches, and mosques around the United States. In 2001, he was awarded a special Penn Award for his stance in breaking the censorship that effectively exists around Israel-Palestinian matters in the U.S. mainstream media. In 2005, he was awarded the Martin Luther King Jr. Mahatma Gandhi Peace Award from Morehouse College. He's appeared on numerous television shows, Larry King, CNN, Meet the Press, Bill Moyers, and on and on. In fact, New York Times Sunday Magazine called him this year's prophet at one point. Uh, interesting, interesting, isn't it? Uh, he's also been, of course, taken on pretty heavily by uh, such people as Rush Limbaugh and other right-wing commentators. For those of you interested in his educational background, Rabbi Michael Lerner was mentored by the famous Abraham Joshua Herschel. I think it's Heschel, actually, at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York, and we're going to be talking to him about that because I received an email already from a listener wanting to have some background on that. Michael received a Ph.D. in philosophy from the University of California, Berkeley, and also a Ph.D. in social clinical psychology in 1977. He served as director of the Institute for Labor and Mental Health, dean of the Graduate School of Psychology at the New College of California, founder of Bet Midrash Le Shalom in Jerusalem, Israel. He received rabbinic ordination from Rabbi Zalman Shachta Shalom. Many of you have heard of him. 
and he now serves as rabbi of Bet Tikkun in Berkeley. I could go on and on. I think I better stop right there. This is a man of huge credentials with a wonderful career. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Michael. Thank you so much. Let's start out with embracing Israel and Palestine. Mm -hmm. What's the main thesis of this book for our listeners, please? Well, the main thesis is that um, peace can only be achieved when we abandon the blame game in the attempt to determine that one side is the righteous victim, uh, is the righteous victim, and the other side is the evil other. Um, and uh, both sides have that same kind of discourse in which they see themselves as having been totally clean and free from having ever done anything wrong and simply being the victim of the evil of the other side. And instead, I retell the story in such a way that you can come to understand how both sides have a very legitimate narrative and how both sides have been hurtful and cruel towards the other in ways that provoke the other's certainty that, um, that there is no peace possible. So uh, the book really is an attempt to show a different way of thinking about this, and it argues that actually no political settlement is possible unless there is a fundamental transformation of consciousness on both sides, in which both sides can finally come to recognize the humanity of the other. You're talking about a macrocosm, if you will, between Israel and Palestine. Yes. As, as I'm listening to you, it sounds almost exactly, if not exactly, like on the microcosm, a couple battling it out, where one is saying it's all your fault, and the other one is saying it's all your fault. Yes, yes, you're right. It's exactly, it's exactly like that. It's, um, it's very much... Uh, uh, like what happens in normal human relationships. And the, the fundamental truth here is that <laughs> these are human beings on both sides, and they are, they are uh, complex, uh, like all human beings are, and have parts of them that are, um, that are scared and hurtful. Uh, out, of, uh, out of the fear comes hurtful action, and at the same time, there are parts of them that really hope for a different kind of world and would love to live in peace with each other. And so there's this alternation that goes on in them as in everyone between a part that believes in the possibility of a world based on love and kindness and generosity and a part that believes that it's impossible, that that's a utopian fantasy, and that they have to protect themselves from the other. Thousands and thousands of years ago, in the Bible, which you are so familiar with, we were told that men must cease to pursue wealth as the main aim in life. Mm -hmm. Woe unto them that join house to house, that lay field to field till there is no place. God will not tolerate the oppression of the weak. Mm -hmm. You right. say the same thing in your book, thousands of years later. Yes. I quote you, to the extent that we have come to believe we can't count on others, we tend to protect ourselves as much as possible by accumulating material goods, money, power, sexual conquests, or something tangible. Yeah, yes. Back thousands of years ago, I read, they put their trust in fortifications and alliances. Instead, they should set their own house in order. You're saying the same thing. 
Has anything changed, Michael? Are we just replaying the same theater over and over and over, or are we making progress? Well, I, I think that um, we're pretty much playing the same theme over and over, and yet we have made a lot of progress. That is, many of those who are considered other are no longer considered other. So in that sense, there's, there's a, a great advance. For example, today in the United States, um, black people, African Americans, uh, were treated as though they were animals just 150 years ago, and, uh, and in parts of the country even just uh, 50 years ago. So we now have a black president uh, that was inconceivable. Um, actually, it was inconceivable to many people just uh, a few years before he was elected president. Yes, we are making some progress. We are, we are moving towards seeing more and more others as equally valuable to us. Um, the same thing happened in regard to patriarchy, um, that um, more and more of the dominant male culture has changed to affirm the fundamental equality and humanity of women. And now we've seen that more recently in relationship to gays and lesbians, that more and more of the dominant patriarchal culture is moving towards accepting the humanity of gays and lesbians. So we've made some progress, but at the same time, uh, there's uh, a residual fear, and that residual fear needs to be healed. And, um, and at this point, uh, that is a, an international emergency, not just in Israel-Palestine, but in the United States as well. We have to be able to overcome the nationalism that leads, for example, every president, including uh, Obama, to end every State of the Union speech with, uh, God bless America. God bless the United States of America, and uh, I'm looking forward to the time when that pre- uh, a president will say, God bless the United States of America and every other country on the planet, because we are all fundamentally intertwined, our fates are fundamentally intertwined, and we recognize ourselves as part of the same human family. So what you're saying in your book, your latest book, Embracing Israel-Palestine, yes. is really a kind of blueprint for the entire world's conflict, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, and um, many people are disappointed at that. They wish that I'd have just the solution for Israel-Palestine. But there really isn't any solution for Israel-Palestine that isn't simultaneously a solution for the rest of the world. Because in the 21st century, the real problems facing us are... Um, not, well, fun, the fundamental problem facing us is the destruction of the environment. And, the, uh, and the, all these nationalist struggles are... Um, uh, diverting our attention from the real problem facing the human race, and we don't have time for it anymore. We literally don't have time. We have, we've got to fix this planet. We've got to protect it. We've got to repair all the damage that 150 years of irresponsible forms of industrialization have uh, done to our planet. And in order for that to work, it will not work unless all the countries of the world are united together and willing to overcome their nationalisms. So, yes, we, we have a, a huge problem that uh, needs to be overcome very, very quickly, and that can happen, but it's going to have to happen with a transformation of consciousness, not only in Israel-Palestine, but in the United States and the West as a whole. So, in a way, you're reminding us what Isaiah said way back then, set thy house in order. Yes, absolutely. And you're it, saying that our entire house, the planet, is out of order right now, not just two countries. Right, exactly. And, uh, and that the destruction of the planet 
is really the number one health issue facing the entire human race. So if I understand you then, we, we have a kind of mix, an, an intertwined uh, relationship between consciousness and politics. Totally. That's right. what's going on. And the, and, and the politics are being driven, if I understand you, by corporatization, which mm-hmm. is in conflict with the kind of spiritual life that you're talking about that would save the planet. Could you elaborate on that, please? Yes. Well, um, you see, the, 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 first of all, the struggle, the fundamental struggle is between two worldviews. One worldview that says that human beings are thrown uh, by ourselves into this, into this world. We, we wake up and find ourselves uh, surrounded by evil others who are just seeking to maximize their own interests. And the only way we can protect ourselves and flourish ourselves is to dominate and control others before they dominate and control us. And that worldview that I call the worldview of fear, or in one of my books I call it the right hand of God, the, the worldview of domination and power over others. Power over, rather power than over. power with. Exactly. Uh-huh. That, that worldview, the power over worldview, is, um, uh, uh, leads to a vision of homeland security, or personal security even, that says that uh, you're only going to be secure when you have power over others and they don't have power over you. Now, the other worldview that um, uh, says something quite different, it says, no, we're actually um, not coming into this world by ourselves. We're coming into the world through a mother, and our mother gave us a lot of love and caring in the first few years of our life, and that love and caring has provided a foundation for a different worldview, namely that it is possible to get security and safety in this world through caring for others, through generosity of spirit, uh, through love, and that those uh, that that makes it possible then to imagine a different kind of politics, a politics based on a worldview of uh, caring, hopefulness, generosity, and love, and um, and so these two worldviews have been in conflict. But what's happened in the uh, for for many thousands of years? What's happened in the past 300 years, as the capitalist marketplace has emerged as the dominant form of economic life, is that most people spend most of their waking hours in the world of work, and the world of work is organized around the principle of fear and domination and control. So what happens is, is that all day long, people are learning the lesson that supposedly the real world is about domination, control, manipulation of others, figuring out how to advance yourself without regard to the consequences for others. And that worldview then is brought home, that experience in the, is brought home into personal life and often has a disastrous effect on human relationships because when people have learned how to manipulate and control and dominate all day long, it's hard to stop doing that when they get home. So, so in that sense, the macrocosm then drives the microcosm. Exactly, so that there's a spiritual crisis every place in the society, because um, more and more people feel lonely and, uh, and, and, and feel that they can't trust other people, and they have absorbed the dominant ethos into their consciousness. And even though most people want a different kind of world, they also believe that their wants are purely personal and unrealistic, and that in order to be able to deal in the real world, they've got to hone their skills. That's why they made, for example, um, Looking Out for Number One, one of the best sellers of, of this country uh, 
in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, and uh, another bestseller, uh, um, uh, uh, looking out for number one, is uh, success through domination. Uh, so, so you have these um, uh, these instincts that are coming not from inside people, but from their absorbing the dominant cultural vision of what reality is. And this is very close to some of the themes in my book, uh, Spirit Matters, because uh, um, the, the way that um, spiritual life is based on the second worldview, it's based on the possibility of a world of love and caring and kindness and generosity, overcoming uh, whatever fears that we have about others and building a different kind of world. So um, this is what is needed for Israel-Palestine, but unfortunately, uh, in Israel-Palestine, both peoples have suffered uh, from a huge trauma um, uh, or a set of huge traumas in their history, and so each side finds it impossible to see the other as really human and is really deserving of love and caring and kindness, and only, they only see each other through the framework of domination and control and fear that if they were to take a generous step towards the other, the other would only act in a hurtful way. You, you've gone on record as stating that you thought the entire country of Israel is suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Yes, as well as the Palestinians. As well, yes. as, so I guess, as, well as the Palestinians. Yes. So we've got two countries, two, two people, two people. Uh, who are, who, who are all of whom, or certainly if, if not a, a very yeah. high percentage of whom are suffering from post-traumatic how, how do people who are suffering this, this level of anxiety and fear come to make a cultural change? What is your prescription uh, for, for making that kind of consciousness change that would allow them to heal enough in order to be able to hear the kind of words that you're putting forth with regard to nurturance and trust rather than fear and avarice? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that the first thing is that we have to challenge the, challenge the vision of fear and... Um, I mean, I, I, I argue in the book that um, there is no uh, single magic bullet. There is, because um, uh, I think the first thing we have to, to do is to recognize that this is not like a normal psychological issue. This is a, when, when we say post-traumatic stress disorder, we're acknowledging that the, the problem didn't originate in one's own internal psychopathology. Yes. That there really was a trauma. There was an external trauma yeah. that the person saw and smelled and felt. Right. And you can't deal with that kind of trauma by saying, hey, you're no longer in the circumstance, because, uh, so get over it. Um, you know, if Agreed. you say to a woman who's been raped, hey, your rapist is in jail and won't be out for a long time, so you don't have to worry anymore. Yeah, get over it. Get over it. It, does, it doesn't work. It's not a successful therapy. Uh, I mean, it's important to point out that the, that the rapist is in jail, and it's important to point out to, to Israelis that, um, no, they're not facing Hitler today. They're facing um, a force that is much less uh, powerful and, uh, and much less likely to be able to do any of the the uh, destruction to the Jewish people that happened to us uh, um, in our uh, some sixty five years ago, but um, 
but that's not sufficient. No, um, no, no. The prescription of a get over it is not a therapeutic exactly. intervention that has any credibility. <laughs> it doesn't work as a, right. as a therapy. Would that it did. It would be wonderful, but yes, life isn't course. like that. Um, but, um, but so what one needs is to develop a very compassionate uh, approach to both sides. And part of what I do in this book, Embracing Israel-Palestine, is I try to show that it's that uh, it is only with compassion towards the other side's story that we're going to even begin to make a step forward. And so part of the book is telling the story in such a way that you could understand the humanity of each side. And um, because... Really, almost everybody who interacts, including and in every every individual and every country that interacts with either Israel or Palestine, um, tends to support the view that one side or the other is the righteous victim, and that the other side is the bad guy. And so, uh, so we need a different discourse to start with. We need a different discourse. We need anybody who cares about Israel, Palestine to be able to tell the story as we tell it in embrace as I tell it in embracing Israel Palestine to tell it in a way that affirms the humanity of each side and that compassionately understands how each side could come to see the other in the negative ways that it does and see that not just as a pathology but as based on some real actions that the other side has taken that make people feel scared and uh, suspicious of the other, particularly given the frames of interpretation that they bring to their own experience. I'm hoping that everybody listening to you, Michael, is also thinking of everything you're saying in terms of their own personal relationships. Yeah. Because every single thing you're saying does apply to our to our love relationships and to our friendship relationships. 100%. Right? Yes. How often do we point the finger and say it's all your fault or it's because you did this that I this. Right. And right. and you're expanding it right up to millions of people and to countries. You have to because these people are people. We're all, it's <laughs> one still of the people. That often is forgotten is um, or assumed by one side or the other is that the the other side isn't aren't really like human beings. I can't tell you how many times in Israel I've had this experience of people saying, oh, you know, you, you people in the West, you don't understand what Arabs are really like. They're really fundamentally different. All they want, all they believe in is power and domination and control. They, all they understand is the gun. And then I hear the same thing from Palestinians, that they say, you know, you, um, the Jews have lost all of their moral sense and they only care about power and domination. They just want to get rid of us. They want to throw us out of Palestine. And, you see, so each side can, um, forgets that the other side is composed of human beings just like them, and that each side actually has at least the vast majority. I don't mean to deny that there aren't some real nutcases on both sides, <laughs> some really hurt, hurtful people whose, whose um, pathologies have gone so deep that effectively there's no way to reach them. But there's a vast majority of people on both sides who are not so, uh, so paralyzed in pathology that they don't have a strong part of them that would prefer to give up this, uh, these struggles and move on to live life together in some peaceful way if they thought it was at all realistic. So the thing that we're up against more than anything is the conviction that people hold that... Um, it's unrealistic to think that the other guy has any 
fundamental decency within them. As I'm listening to you, I'm also thinking about the 1% and the 99% movement in this country. Yeah. Because I know that it's all connected. Yes, it certainly is. And, um, I mean, one of the things that, uh, that when you listen to the discourse of the, um, of the 1%, and they can ten- tend to control the media and so forth, um, they, uh, they really do act as though they don't believe that the rest of us are real human beings. Now, conversely, I've been insisting that, uh, the, that the 99% has to recognize the humanity of the 1%, and that there's no... that um, while we need to challenge their actions, we need to affirm their humanity as, human, you know, as individual human beings. And that, that's a trick. It's a tricky thing to do. But we have to, on the one hand, be very strong in saying, no, the, uh, when you're... Um, benefiting from uh, the huge inequalities in this country and supporting um, a media that distorts the realities and never really tells the story of, the ni- of at least a significant section of the 99% and how much suffering has been caused, um, that this has to stop and we have to challenge that. But while we challenge that, we also have to affirm the humanity of the 1%, just as the 1% has to, challenge, has to affirm the humanity of the other 99%. I want to uh, share with you a theory that is held by some and ask your opinion on it. Sure. There are those who believe that the 1% are not only purposefully accumulating what they're accumulating, but they are purposefully oppressing the 99% that they are purposely creating various kinds of drugs that will dumb down the rest of the population, that will actually, in many cases, do damage. I had Robert Whitaker on my program a, a month or two ago. Mm-hmm. He has a book out, I don't know if you've seen it, called Anatomy of an Epidemic. He's a, he's a prominent investigative journalist. And what he points out in there, Michael, is that Many of the SSRIs that are being sold to the United States citizens actually are creating mental illness rather than in any way healing. And it's a very powerful book and it's a very important one. Mm. And the theory that I'm putting, t- telling you about, that I'm sharing with you, is that, that this is a purposeful action, that there's a belief on the part of many of the 1% that the more that they can create economic instability so that people lose jobs and lose their homes, therefore putting them more in a fear state, therefore then being able to herd them and therefore also being able to hire them for lower wages because they are now scared of losing their homes, and many of them have, that the same population are being fed these massive amounts of of uh, supposed um, uh, antidepressants, but which are in effect actually creating mental illness, mm-hmm. that this same group is being, the, the, the 99% are being fed massive amounts of brainwashing through the media, mm-hmm. and that this is a concerted effort coming from many angles, a many-pronged approach is the way it's been described mm-hmm. to me, in order to do something that historically the 1% have always done, going all the way back to ancient Egypt, when the 1% at the top, the pharaohs, using their religious uh, backers and their army, were able to hold 99% in virtual slavery by convincing them that they were supposed to be slaves, that that was God's way, and you know that better than I. Yes, absolutely. 
you know, um, I have no doubt that there are such people, but uh, amongst the 1%, and I've met some of them, <laughs> and I've met some of those people... Who, who actually uh, speak that way. Yeah, who, um, who feel, uh, feel that. On the other hand... They, uh, feel, they feel that the rest of us are actually other. Yes. Correct? Other. Yeah. But, um, and unfortunately, they've been able, through the media, to convince a lot of Americans that, that, the, that even the people next door to them are other. That, uh, and that if, um, and because so many of us have internalized the dominant worldview that says this is a society uh, based on a meritocracy in which you can make it if you really try. And if you haven't made it, if you haven't been successful, it's your own fault. And so this, uh, this um, brilliant way of, um, of turning the 99% against itself. Yes. Uh, uh, making people feel that um, internalizing of, uh, feelings that they themselves have uh, created the mess, that they themselves are responsible for having failed to be more successful. And um, for many years as a psychotherapist, um, I, uh, I worked with the labor movement and worked work with people in middle-income working jobs. And I found that um, one of the biggest issues was the self-blaming that people engage in because they um, believe in the meritocracy. In fact, they believe in it not only in the work world, but even in social life, so that, uh, th- this, uh, so that where you end up in terms of relationships, if you have a bad relationship or it's not feeling good, it often tends to reconfirm feelings that people have inside that they don't really deserve to make it. And part of the reason they feel that they don't really deserve to make it is because they've ended up in a job that isn't really very fulfilling and as, is often very frustrating. And they have this dominant trope that goes from, from the media and through, through the entire educational system that says, hey, this is a society based on fairness in which you can, you know, if you're, if you're good and you work hard and you have the right qualities, you will succeed. And so people internalize that in such a deep way and then end up blaming themselves and feeling terrible about themselves. So, and, so we have an epidemic of low self-esteem. Well, we do. We have and, a, um, we a, do. an epidemic of self-blaming. And, it's uh, it's one showing, of the Michael, that, you know, it's showing, itself, it's showing itself more than any time in recorded history in the epidemic of obesity and overweight that we have in this country. Yes. We're, we're at a place now where 67% of the American public are obese or overweight, and nobody is really looking at what that is saying. Right. What is the message that the people are bringing to the world by right. being so overweight? Right. And you, of all people, must understand this because in some way that, that message is, is, is a spiritual message, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. When it's, people it's do this to themselves? That I am not enough. I am not enough. That I, I have to fill enough. myself up with more. That I'm not okay as, as I am. And something has to be... So uh, this spiritual emptiness that then people seek a variety of ways, a variety of addictions to fill up, and whether that is um, in overeating or whether that is in, uh, in sexual uh, uh, acting out or whether that's in trying to accumulate as much money as possible, um, there are a whole ver- or whether it's in alcoholism, whether it's in drug abuse, there are so many ways in which people feeling that they are not enough um, use externals to try to drown out that really horrible feeling inside. Well then, but aren't they, in fact, 
being suppressed? Aren't their spirits actually being downtrodden? Aren't they, if I quote from the Bible, what mean ye that ye beat my people to pieces and grind the faces of the poor? Yes. And grind the faces. Isn't this a, a, yet another example of grinding the faces of the poor by that by those that you say you have personally met in the one percent yes. who are out to do this? Yes. But what I want to tell you is that simultaneously, um, I've treated some of those people as a, as a therapist, and um, that often I find that these people are themselves victims of the larger ideology. And they've come to believe that, um, that the best system is the one which gives them the most, not because they simply are selfish, but because they think everybody is selfish and everybody's materialistic. And so in a world in which you've lost faith in a, your fellow human being, then people then justify to themselves the amassing of huge amounts of power and even manipulating others for the sake of amassing uh, a, massive, uh, a huge amount of power and wealth for yourself on the theory that, look, this is how reality is, and since it's reality, it's either going to be me amassing this power and wealth and manipulating others and having power over others and setting up uh, destructive systems and not caring about the outcome of whether the medicines I'm uh, putting out into the marketplace are good, or it'll be somebody else. And if as long as it's going to be that way, as long as I'm certain, as long as I have a deeply cynical view of who other human beings are, I can justify to it, it, it to myself and say, um, okay, I'm having this power over other people and I'm, I'm putting out things that are destructive. I'm creating, uh, I'm creating cars that may crash. I'm, I'm creating uh, medicines that may be more destructive than helpful, but I'm doing it in a system where somebody was going to do it anyway. So why not have me be on top rather than somebody else be on top? Why should I be the one fool on the block who's caring about other people when I know very well that everybody else just cares about themselves and they will take care of themselves. So it's a systematic thing. It's not, it's not simply individual evil. It is individual cynicism and, about who other people are. And this cynicism is not confined to the 1%, because the other 99%, we would be together and we would change this whole economic system if we trusted that other people really could be counted on. So when you look at the 99%, you see that people are drowned, drenched in this same cynicism and same belief that everybody is just out to get, maximize their own interests without regard to the consequences for others. And if that has to, be, um, has to be treated as a social psychological pathology that, uh, that has to be worked on by all of us. So the 1%, 99%, the Israeli-Palestinian... Very similar. Very similar. There's a, there's, um, very, very similar. This is a central issue facing our planet right now. The only way we're going to be able to save our planet is, is the same way we're going to be able to save Israel-Palestine, is the same way we're going to be able to keep the United States from going to a war in Iran. Um, it's the same thing. It's overcoming the certainty that the other is evil or that the other is, is um being uh, pushed by their desire for power and control and domination, and that there's nothing we can do about that because everybody is like that, and that we'd be stupid and self-destructive if we didn't act that way ourselves in our daily life. 
So once you see that this is a, a pathology that goes through the whole society, then number one, you need to approach people with compassion and a spirit of generosity. Compassion because not, and generosity. But number two, you need to challenge that. these ideas yes. in the public sphere. You need to challenge them and say, no, it's not true. And um, and the fact is... Hold, hold on a second, Michael. Yes. I'm going to interrupt you. Someone's been trying to get through here once to ask a question, so yes, I'm going to take sure. the call. Thanks, Michael. Go ahead. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Uh, yes. Um, I think that I met um, Dr. Rabbi Lerner uh, in uh, 1987 when he was... Uh, started the Commonweal in uh, Bolinas. That's a different Michael Lerner, and I know that one oh, as well, is? but it's a different one. The Michael Lerner in Bolinas is working in a, as a cancer researcher and has for many years, and this is a different Michael Lerner. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I just wanted to tell you, I have a book written by Michael Lerner called The Left Hand of God. Now, yes. that's the Michael that's Lerner that's one. with us today. Okay, well, I just want to tell you how much I really enjoyed reading that book. Okay. It came out in 2006. Yes. And uh, I recommend it to anybody. Well, thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you very much. Yes, it became a national bestseller in 2006. Uh, I was, uh, a lot of people seem to have gotten something out of it, and I very much appreciate your remark. Okay. okay. Thank you. Many blessings to you. Bye. For those of you uh, just tuning in, you're listening to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Our guest today is Dr. Michael Lerner, Rabbi Michael. By the way, Michael, how does one properly introduce you in that regard? Is it Rabbi Dr. Michael Lerner, if one wanted to be formal, that is? Okay. Well, first of all, I could care less. I know. <laughs> okay. I said if one wanted to be formal. <laughs> I, I don't care about yeah. it. Right? I don't care about all these titles. I'm just two curious. PhDs and this degree and that, you know, this, this honor and that honor, you know, we're all, and when it comes down to it, we're all just normal human beings. Yes, and we are. So, uh, I mean, people address me as rabbi. Uh, people who know me call me Michael. Yes, you know? and, of course. Um, uh, but if you wanted to be formal, rabbi is enough. I don't want to, you know, rabbi, doctor, doctor. Thank I have people you. saying to Thank me, you. forget it. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I say that those two PhDs that I have, that plus $5 gets me across the Bay Bridge. Yes, <laughs> it's $5 now. <laughs> that plus $5, yes. Uh, by the way, Rabbi Michael Lerner has written many books. Jewish Renewal is one of them, The Politics of Meaning, The Socialism of Fools, Spirit Matters, which we're talking about today, uh, su Surplus Powerlessness, Yes. Surplus powerlessness, the psychodynamics of everyday life, and the psychology of individual and social transformation. He wrote one called Jews and Blacks, a dialogue on race, religion, and culture in America with Cornell West. Uh, the one today, of course, that we're talking about is Embracing Israel-Palestine, and uh, our... Um, our listener just called in with uh, his other book, The Left Hand of God. All of these you could find easily by Googling Michael on, uh, just Google Michael, and you'll, uh, Michael Lerner, and you'll find uh, the list of all the books. How, how do you call into your station? I mean, is okay. there a number that you give out? Or? That's, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you for reminding me. The number here is 707-937-5103. I repeat, 707-937-5103. 5103, pick up your phone, call in, and, uh, and ask Michael a question. Let's go, well, in fact, somebody's doing that immediately, Michael, so I'll take the call. Okay. Go ahead. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Oh, good morning. 
Good morning. Good morning. I wondered if you could ask your guest to um, talk about the Truth and Reconciliation Council that was started in South Africa, um, which, to all intents and purposes, had quite a, a huge impact yeah. on the years of bitter hatred between um, the whites there and the blacks. Thank you. And I wonder if there's any, any perspective from that that we can shine on the situation with Israel, understanding, of course, that it's is an endemic issue for all of us, but if you could just focus on the Israel issue. Yes. Um, well, in my book, Embracing Israel-Palestine, I definitely recommend that as one of the steps. In fact, I, I uh, include that as one of the, the uh, parts of a, uh, a, a solution or a um, final settlement agreement between Israel and Palestine. Um, I think that that's extremely important. But unfortunately... What's the reference there, the, that that you're That talking? is the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was done in South Africa. Thank you. And that needs to be adapted to Israel-Palestine. But of course, that only took place after the political arrangement had been worked out. Uh, you couldn't get the Truth and Reconciliation Commission to work before um, the, um, before the uh, white minority had been willing to let go of power. And I doubt if you're going to be able to get it to work very well in Israel-Palestine before um, Israel is willing to give up um, uh, the uh, occupation of the West Bank and uh, the, the blockade of Gaza and recognize the humanity of the Palestinian people. But of course, as I say, I doubt if that will happen until the Palestinian people are also able to acknowledge the humanity of the Israeli people. It's got to go both ways, just like yeah, the husband has exactly. to, re the I, husband I, has I to respect the wife and say, your opinion is very different, but I respect it. And the wife has to say to the husband, as different as your opinion is, it doesn't make you wrong, sick, bad, crazy, or stupid. It's simply different. Yes, exactly. Right. And uh, I think that... Um, uh, that that we in the United States can play an important role there. Number one, because there's a large Jewish community here that has continually affirmed the policies of the most right-wing governments in Israel. And, um, uh, and because the fear that Israelis have is, uh, in, is dramatically supported by a large section of the, uh, the American Jewish population here. And so... Some of that work can be done right now with the, uh, with the American Jewish population. Um, and part of this book, Embracing Israel-Palestine, is a tool, it can be seen as a tool to do that kind of transformation consciousness in the Jewish world here in the United States, because um, it's that Jewish world that then push, uh, that together with Christian Zionists, uh, and there's a very large section of Christian Zionists, about six times as many Christian Zionists as there are Jews in the United States. What is a, um, Zion what is a Zionist nowadays, Michael? Well, they call themselves Christian Zionists. Uh, I mean, I, I, I think that that term is, you know, as, is a generic term for the, for the national liberation struggle of Jews, but unfortunately it has been co-opted by the most right-wing elements in the Jewish world, both in the United States and in Israel, to mean blanket support for the policies of Israeli government, no matter what it does. And that kind of Zionism is antithetical to, uh, to bringing peace and uh, is really, uh, you know, they, they, they call themselves the pro-Israel force. But I actually believe that, um, that those who give blanket support to Israeli policies, no matter how hurtful and destructive, 
are really anti-Israel. That is not in their intention. Could one not their... say the same thing about any country? Anytime you give blanket support to any group without questioning what they do, you're opening yourself up to a form of terrorism, are you not? Yes, exactly. That's why, why I believe that the greatest patriots who have not yet been adequately celebrated are those who resisted the war in Vietnam in the United States. They're the true, true pro-Americans, whereas those who um, dragged us into that war and then kept it going and... Uh, ended up killing so many Americans and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, many, 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 many times more uh, Vietnamese. These were anti, anti-Americans. They were bad for America. They were, yes. they were hurtful yes, to America. Ex- and, and, the, so, and the anti-war people were, were considered unpatriotic. I want to take another call here, Michael. Let's sure. see who this is. Hi there. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Well... I thought Hello. they were on the air. Well, I've got something else that I no, can somebody, do. They're, they're there. Hello? Oh, yeah? Good morning. Oh, well, welcome. You're on the air. I really don't know where to start, but I guess I'd have to say that anybody who criticizes the Jews is immediately going to be attacked and silenced. And so any opposition to uh, the way things are, the way the mainstream media owned by the Jews portray it, the way the professions, um, you know, uh, play it out to us, like your psychological profession, making all problems reduced to psychology, instead of looking at the material basis for mental illness, the material basis for conflict and war in this world, and just going back to people's good intentions. Well, yes, that is certainly high on my list of how that we're going to change things but not recognizing that those people with bad intentions on, in the material world carry out their greedy policies and affect everybody else, and everybody else is supposed to grin and bear it. Mm-hmm. Well, I certainly am not in favor of grin and bear it. I'm, uh, I, I'm uh, active with uh, Occupy San Francisco, Occupy Oakland, uh, um, the Occupy movement as a whole. I've been engaged in struggle against this system for at least the last uh, 50 years, uh, and actually only 47, 48 years of my life, the last 48 years of my life, including going to prison against the war in Vietnam. So you don't have to um, preach to me about the importance of changing the system, because I am totally against the uh, a system based on domination and control, and that's why I've set up through Tikkun Magazine, I'm the editor of Tikkun, it's T-I-K-K-U-N dot org. You can find it on, on the web, and I hope you and others will subscribe to Tikkun. Tikkun dot org, you'll find there um, our network of spiritual progressives. And the network of spiritual progressives are for people who want to change the society, who want to act in a fundamental way, and... Um, and the central goal of our network is to change the bottom line in America. Right now, that bottom line says that institutions or social practices should be judged efficient, rational, and productive uh, to the extent that they maximize money or power. And that validates the system of inequality and domination that I'm very much uh, opposed to. Um, so we need a new bottom line, and that new bottom line says that, that institutions, corporations, Social practices should be judged efficient, rational, and productive, not only to the extent that they maximize money or power, but also to the extent that they maximize love and caring, kindness and generosity, 
ethical and ecological sensitivity, enhance our capacity to respond to other human beings as embodiments of the sacred, and enhance our capacity to respond to the universe and to nature around us with awe and wonder and radical amazement at the grandeur of all that is. I, that I, love, is, your, I love your concept of an ethical impact report that is a, a, a right. sort of analogy to the environmental impact report that we do when we build something. Right. That a that, corporation that, should have to do an ethical impact report before it can proceed with any of its major production. That's a great concept, Michael. Yeah, and see that, so we've embodied that now because um, people say, oh, well, he's talking about love, kindness, and generosity. What does it have to do with politics? Well, it has a great deal to do with politics because we've introduced uh, what we call the Environmental and Social Responsibility Amendment to the federal Constitution. And that has been introduced into Congress now by Dennis Kucinich as House Resolution 156. House Resolution 156. But you can read the Environmental and Social Responsibility Amendment on the web at um, if you go to spiritualprogressives.org, and you'll come to... Say that again, please. Spiritual pro- Progressives, yes. with, a, uh, with an S at the end there, Progressives, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. spiritualprogressives.org. If you go there, you'll find both our Global Marshall Plan, which is a plan to end, uh, uh, to end poverty, homelessness, hunger, inadequate education, inadequate health care, both in the United States and around the world. And then the Environmental and Social Responsibility Amendment, um, which is an amendment to the Constitution that would do the following. Number one, it would ban all private money in elections so that elections can only be funded by public funds that are given equally, equal amount to all major candidates. And it bars um, any, uh, it requires that all the media give equal time to all the major candidates and bars those candidates from buying any other media time except the equal time that they get from, uh, for free from the, uh, from the media. And then it goes, that's point number one. Point number two, it says that all corporations with incomes over $100 million, so we're not talking about small or medium-sized corporations, but the really big ones, have to get a new corporate charter once every five years. And that corporate charter will only be granted if uh, they can prove a satisfactory history of environmental and social responsibility to a jury of ordinary citizens so that instead of having regulate, regulating agencies that are filled up with the very people they're supposed to be regulating, instead trust ordinary people to make this decision and let people from all over the world who were affected by the operations of that corporation testify to that jury about what... Um, uh, uh, about what the impact of that corporation's actions have been. So this is the Environmental and Social Responsibility, we call it ESRA, ESRA. It's at spiritualprogressives.org. Um, and this is part of why we are saying that we need to k- build a different kind of social movement, a movement that, uh, I mean, to sum it in a very short, short way, we say this is a movement that for the caring society caring for each other, and caring for the earth. And, um, and one of the reasons, yes, I, I'm on this program in part to hope, uh, hopefully uh, encourage people to buy my book, Embracing Israel-Palestine, but also to consider joining our network of spiritual progressives. You don't have to be religious. You don't have to believe in God. You don't, what you have to believe in is love and the capacity of love and kindness and generosity to heal and transform our planet. And that 
is not just psycho psychobabble because we trans because we're talking about uh, in, uh, requiring institutions to maximize people's capacity to be loving and caring and generous and kind. And when you apply that to our educational system, when you apply that to our media, when you apply that even to our legal system, you get a fundamental transformation of the economic and political institutions that our caller just uh, referred to, thinking that I thought, uh, or that we and the spiritual progressives thought, that it was only a change of heart that is needed. No, it's a change of institutions, too. But those institutions will only change when we ourselves are able to take steps towards transforming ourselves in a loving way. Yeah, you're saying the external has to come from within. The consciousness has to change first, and then the external manifestations. Well, no, I don't want to say it first, because oh, I... concurrently, are you saying? Yes, concurrently, concurrently. because I, I believe that part uh, of what makes it possible for people to move towards a larger sense of um, their interconnectedness is to be engaged in struggles for, uh, for the changes in the economic and political realm. But unfortunately, too often the people who are just political end up forgetting about the heart, and they end up talking in a language of technocratic uh, discourse that makes everybody think, um, I don't know what these people are talking about. Yeah, yeah. That's why I'm saying the new bottom line is about love, caring, and generosity. And then people say, oh, no, well, that's too, that's too mushy. But it's not mushy at all, because the truth of the matter is that everybody wants a world like that, <laughs> only they don't believe that anybody else does. Yes. And that's why, why we need an organization, and that's why we created the network of spiritual progressives so that people could join and come out of the closet as spiritual progressives, to stand up publicly together and say, I really do want a world based on love, kindness, and generosity, and no, I'm not going to be realistic and settle for less, because being realistic ends up meaning reinforcing the existing social order. I'm going to take another call on that note. Michael, if you will, thank you. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Yes, good morning, Richard. And first of all, Michael, um, I remember a couple of years ago when you had to withdraw because of cancer um, yes. from your work, and uh, so I, I haven't heard from you since, so I'm, I'm, you've obviously been successful with that, so welcome back. Thank you so much. Well, I have my next CAT scan in two weeks, and we'll see. Oh, good. <laughs> but I think, I think I'm doing you're, well. You're, you're a really great guy, and I really applaud your work. My, my specific question, uh, Michael, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> uh, as I see it, the, the Israelis, government, nation, and so forth, is, has basically been hijacked by the 10% of Jews in Israel that are fundamentalist Jews. And um, their policy, I mean, that the, and, it, and it's now owned by the government, is to basically push the Palestinians out of the West Bank through colonization, through the um, settlements program. Um, if you've been, in the, you've been in the West Bank, haven't you? Oh, of course. Well, it's like measles. Every five miles, there's another Israeli settlement, and they're expanding. They keep going out, and is, the Israeli government does everything possible to, you know, make them expand. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> those Jews that are doing this, the, they're, they're only 10%, but they're, they're, they're very powerful, very powerful. Mm -hmm. yes. And their, their basic message is that they are following God's direction. That, you know, 3,000 years ago, this was Jewish land, and God wants them back, and the Palestinians just have to go. And they will do everything possible, you know, I mean, they own APAC here in the United States. Mm -hmm. And yep. as, a, as a Jew, how do, you, how do you deal with them? I mean, how do you, how do you, I mean, that's, until that problem gets solved, until the, the, 
the Jews and the Israeli nation say, what, this is Palestinian land, not Jewish land. Until you get to that central issue, and you can convince the, I don't know if, and if it'll ever happen, but um, until that problem gets solved, the fundamentalist Jews that, you know, control the government, have mm-hmm. the guns, own the, mil- own the military, and continually expand and, and make it life increasingly, you know, smaller and impossible for the Palestinians living there, until that problem gets addressed, uh, I don't see any solution. And I wonder how you deal with the fundamentalist Jewish um, mandate from God to colonize and um, take over the West Bank. Mm-hmm. Well, in the book, you, I, I think we only have a very few minutes left. You're right, Michael. We've got about a minute and a half for you to answer so, that so long I'm question. I'm quickly just say that I do deal with this in, in my book, Embracing Israel-Palestine, and the short of it is that I don't want to force those, um, those settlers out of the West Bank. Instead, I want a two-state solution in which um, the settlers are given the choice of either uh, accepting a generous um, amount of money to move back into uh, into, um, what is Israel, or else to remain in Palestine, um, keeping their God-given right to live in the whole land of Israel, remain in Palestine, but as a citizen of Palestine and not a citizen of Israel anymore. So the, the final... The, the, the settlement agreement will have to allow people to stay there, but as citizens of Palestine, and which Israel says, absolutely, we're not going to be coming in there or interfering with, the, with your faith there. It's like living in another country, follow the laws of that country, etc. But the transformations of consciousness that are needed, that's what, um, that, that to make it possible for there to be a settlement, that's what this book deals with, and actually provides some very concrete steps in, the, in that direction. Michael, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us today on this program and for your books, for your work on behalf of all of us, for your, for your being such a great humanitarian. I hope you'll come back again sometime in the future. Many blessings to you. Thank you so much for your show, which is a wonderful show, and uh, I very much appreciate what you are doing, Richard, and uh, thank you for having me on this show. Lots of love to you. Thank you all. For listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our KZYX staff and our in-studio engineer, my dear friend, Mike Delora. Please join me again in exactly, wait a second, not two weeks, please join me next week. Yeah, we've got two weeks in a row coming, so join me next week at 9 o'clock California time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.